The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, hosted by The Nation magazine and found wherever you listen to your podcast. Um, for this week, I want to take a little bit of a break from politics uh, and talk about something that does have a politics, but is also, I think, more broadly, a big part of the imaginative life of um, several generations of people around the world, uh, which is Star Wars. Uh, obviously a franchise that started uh, in the 1970s uh, with the original trilogy um, and has sort of spawned uh, an endless series of sequels and prequels. And I think at this point in human history, um, something astonishing has happened, which one would not have predicted in 1977, when I, like many kids, uh, watched, uh, got my mind blown by Star Wars and thought about these characters all the time, which is that we've entered into a phase of decadent Star Wars fatigue, uh, where there's just been so much Star Wars, uh, some of it a very middling quality, um, that it's hard to like get interested or uh, excited by Star Wars anymore. Uh, this is perhaps the, the natural course of human life uh, to go from childhood uh, excitement uh, to middle age uh, malaise. Uh, but uh, it remains sad. And I, th I think in some of the poorer Star Wars products of recent years, one has seen a kind of um, attempt at uh, nostalgic recuperation to go back to the original hit that got people so excited to go back to the juice. And once these endless replays of, you know, the Death Star being blown up, every new Death Stars being blown up in ever newer ways and of uh, lightsaber fights and the um, enduring saga of the Skywalker family, uh, which seems to go through the same cycle of events over and over again. Uh, so it is with some, um, within this context, of Star Wars fatigue, it's uh, somewhat interesting, I think, and worth noting that um, something surprising has happened, which is that there's actually good Star Wars out there. Uh, there's a, a, a new show um, uh, called Andor on um, Disney. Um, and I think it's almost becoming a meme on Twitter. Uh, Andor is actually good. <laughs> and I think the person uh, who's done the best job of explaining why Andor is actually good um, is uh, the TV critic, Sean T. Collins, who's been uh, writing essays about the series for The Decider and who writes broadly about uh, television and popular culture. Um, for uh, many websites, which uh, I, I will uh, give, um, uh, and is particularly a kind of, um, not just a critic, but I would almost say one of the leading experts on uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, and so I, I, within the podcast notes, uh, you'll see where to um, get more of Sean's work. But I want to welcome Sean and uh, yeah, see if he agrees with me. Is Andor an unexpected uh, good Star Wars? Yes, absolutely. I mean, much to my surprise. My most recent experience with Star Wars was uh, reviewing Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was the very pretty short series that they made starring Ewan McGregor, re reprising his role as... Obi-Wan Kenobi from the prequel trilogy and actually uh, Hayden Christensen who played Anakin Skywalker and then briefly Darth Vader also returned to play Darth Vader and that had me excited as a, you know I'm one of those people who's a prequel guy uh, for better or for worse so I 
I thought that it was, um, you know, maybe in a precursor to some of the things that I found appealing about Andor, I simply thought that it was appealing that they were going back to some of the material that wasn't rooted in the original trilogy that began in 1977, right? Because as you say, most of the juice that they've been trying to squeeze out of the Star Wars uh, berry for or whatever uh, has been d- directly derived from the stuff established in those first three movies, the big planet exploding super weapons and the lightsaber fights and the Skywalkers and the Emperor and Han Solo and Princess Leia and all this stuff. You know, that was the stuff of the the sequel trilogy that Disney made. And I definitely found that trilogy delivering diminishing returns as it went. And it it did, you know, certainly by the end of The Rise of Skywalker, it was like the first Star Wars movie that I didn't even bother showing to my kids. You know, I was just like, you don't you don't want to watch this thing. I don't want to watch it again. And I don't think you guys are going to enjoy it either. So and then Obi-Wan wound up being, I think, a real disappointment. It wound up being, again, a retread of stuff from the original trilogy. They built in this relationship between Obi-Wan and like a six-year-old Princess Leia that we had never heard about before and I thought really kind of gilded the lily. They added all these extra confrontations between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader that they now have sandwiched in between their final big emotional operatic fight on that lava planet at the end of Revenge of the Sith. And then their what winds up being their final confrontation in the Death Star in the first Star Wars movie. And I just was like, why did you do this? It kind of, it, it, it makes everything so much less special. And I was really, ugh, I just felt ugh about the whole thing. And Andor came along and, you know, I always need work and it's material that I'm broadly familiar with. So I pitched it and I was accepted to review it for Decider. And in the first 10 minutes the main character goes to a brothel that is identified as such in a star wars show looking for his lost sister who has i guess been trafficked he winds up getting followed by two corporate rent-a-cops one of whom he accidentally beats to death and the second of whom he murders in cold blood to stop the guy the second guy from reporting the first guy's murder that happened in 10 minutes and I was, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm overplaying my hand to say I was shocked, but no, I was legit shocked that this was happening in a Star Wars show. And I think it kind of started as it meant to go on repeatedly through the, whatever it is, four episodes that we've now seen. They're doing things and introducing concepts and character dynamics and political ideas that I feel are genuinely adult in a way that the Star Wars franchise has never done before. And, you know, there are certain exceptions. I think Rogue One, which was made by, uh, at least partially by Tony Gilroy, who's the showrunner here, who also made Michael Clayton. Um, That's the, this is a, this series is a prequel to that film. And, you know, it shares a main character. So it has some of the same elements about, you know, the early days of the rebellion and, and, how hard everyone had to be to make this work. And um, I think even in the first Star Wars movie, you know, I, as I watched the show, I recall the scenes with Luke and his un- aunt and uncle kind of arguing about work and life on the farm and politics as this sort of threatening, but still very distant cloud from where they are. And I, looking back on that, that's actually fairly sophisticated for Star Wars. Listen, I get that Star Wars is for children and 
so they're in general making shows and movies for children, or at least that children can watch without difficulty. And I get that. I appreciate that. That's probably the right move. You know, it is, I do feel a little bit dorky being like, Hey, star Wars for grownups at last. Cause it's not really a franchise for grownups. And I've never demanded that, but I got it and I'm happy. It, it feels like a real drama. It doesn't feel like, you know, trademark maintenance or, you know, just a rehash to keep the, the franchise alive. Uh, I've been really impressed with it. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, a couple of uh, strands to uh, pull on the, uh, what you've said. Um, one of which is uh, this sort of political dimension that I think that there's always been two sides um, of Star Wars, even from that first movie. One of which is the, you know, the story of high politics, of politics at the level of, you know, the emperor, princess, uh, these, these elite forces, even the Jedi. And, but there's also always been, and I, I think that's what made the first movie uh, special, you know, e even as a sort of space opera, uh, you know, like a hint that this is actually like a wider universe uh, with bars, with farmers, with people who uh, lived in and who are experiencing these political fights. Um, and one way to describe Andor, uh, I think is that this is a people's history of the galaxy. <laughs> this is like, you know, like a sort of bottoms up <laughs> view of the revolution, which I actually, I think uh, one of the characters even talks about, you know, like, you know, like the, the grass or roots way in which a rebellion like emerges and also the ways in which the state power and state authority uh, becomes aware of rebellion and tries to thwart it. Um, uh, so, so I mean, I think that's all. Uh, the the political stuff is like very interesting, and um, uh, maybe it's some of the stuff, as you say, is, was implicit in earlier Star Wars, but it's never been made this explicit. And and to the extent that it was in the earlier Star Wars, is always mixed in with like um, a more uh, high politics, elite politics view. Uh, so uh, I, I think that that's very um, interesting. The other element, um, which goes back to like, you know, the sort of farmers talking about all these events is that originally from the first Star Wars movie um, and in the first trilogy, you have a sense of a lived in universe. This is not a shining future where everything is perfect. Actually, like a lot of things have broken down. People, um, and it's almost, it's almost like, uh, uh, it almost seems very, prophetic because I, I feel like now we're living in a time where like there's been a regression of technology and a lot of things that like used to work, you know, like subway lines or whatever uh, are breaking down and- uh, Or this, iTunes. Uh, huh? Yeah, or or iTunes. iTunes or, yeah, even stuff on the <laughs> internet. Like there's actually a lot of websites that used to work very well um, uh, for the comics nerds out there. I mentioned Comicsology, which have broken down. That's the Star Wars universe. It's a world where there's technology, but it's actually uh, in history. And so technology breaks down. It's not the shiny, gleaming future where everything works perfectly. Um, it's a future that also has a history. Uh, and um, I think Andor like really pushes that aesthetic uh, and to, to a kind of new level. Uh, and, and maybe like, uh, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, like I feel like the, the sort of the whole mood and atmosphere is on a different key than like a lot of what people are used to in Star Wars. I agree. I think one thing that I've seen, you know, as you said, the show has gone kind of viral on Twitter for a bunch of reasons. And one thing that I saw passed around, especially among photographers that I know, is that there's a device that uh, one of the characters, a young character who's actually writing a rebellious manifesto 
uh, about his whole theory of politics and oppression. Uh, he introduces this some sort of piece of tech that they need to do something, and it's old. And it's he's like, you know, we've been we've become too uh, dependent on imperial tech. This kind of thing, you know, it's easy to understand. If it breaks down, you can fix it yourself. You don't need this advanced knowledge. It's a Polaroid with some shit glued to it, you know. And it, as everyone has pointed out that I've seen tweet about this, that's a throwback to uh, the way that this the, a lot of the props were designed in the original Star Wars. They were just things, you know, little items of technology that they found lying around the studio. They glued some stuff together, you know, and boom, now you have a lightsaber handle, and it it gives things this kind of chunky, blocky as you say, uh, lived in effect where the technology is not gleaming and shiny and new. It's stuff that's been jerry-rigged and worked on and fixed and broken and fixed again. And it it does, I mean, that's just, that's just one small aspect of it, but it, it does help create the atmosphere that these people are living under circumstances that have gotten markedly worse over the course of their lifetime. And I think part of the problem, political problem faced by the empire, uh, based on what, um, excuse me, what Andor is conveying, is that it's too soon since the empire took over for people to have forgotten what things used to be like. People are aware that this isn't how stuff is supposed to be. They used to be freer. They used to have more advantages. They used to things used to work better. The The system used to be a little more conducive to life and to living. And constantly you're introduced to characters who are making do or um, have lost people they care about to uh, imperial violence and the violence of this sort of understructure of almost equally oppressive corporate entities uh you know certainly the the antagonists in the first few episodes they're not imperial officers at all they work for this corporation that has an agreement with the empire to control this particular sector where they do the work that they do and i thought that was very striking as well and 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 it does paint a picture of a, a society all across this galaxy, you know, there's many disparate different forms of societies and different alien races and all these kinds of things. But it does seem like in concert, things are, they're getting squished down and they're recognizing it. And this show is about the very first people to be like, you know what? Enough of this, enough. And um, enough is a powerful message, I think. And and probably one at the heart of of, of many rebellions, real and imagined. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's right. That in some ways, um, what we're seeing is the uh, the narrative arc of the main character, uh, but not just uh, uh, him, but other people in various ways is um, uh, a political awakening, a realizing of what the system is. And you know, some characters are more advanced along that line than others. And there's tensions between people who are sort of at the start of the journey and people who are. Um, uh, uh, are more, uh, to coin a phrase, woke, uh, <laughs> but there, uh, um, but, but that is the sort of process that's um, uh, at play. Um, and uh, again, um, uh, it, it, it's a very different kind of 
experience, um, it immediately, uh, you know, if you have characters that are learning things, um, that's more exciting than, you know, like uh, a sort of broad overview uh, of characters that already know everything that's that's kind of going on. I mean, uh, again, to return to the original Star Wars, I thought one thing that really worked in the original Star Wars was that it was a story of sort of expanding knowledge that you had Luke Skywalker, who's this, you know, uh, adopted son of a farmer and his wife and who's working out in the sort of um, the hinterlands of the empire and then but he slowly acquires more and more knowledge of you know what the story of the universe uh is um so i think that's all very exciting and i think that that sort of narrative uh, stuff um you had mentioned the showrunner uh gilroy and uh like i would have to imagine uh and he's written like you know not all the episodes but uh uh, uh many of them he seems to be the sort of maybe the prime mover in terms mm -hmm. of uh getting this do you want to say anything about him um, you know, he uh, rather famously in the constant revolving door that is Disney Lucasfilm and the Disney Star Wars franchise, there have been many cases where directors were brought in and replaced or writers were brought in and replaced. And in Tony Gilroy's case, he was brought in to direct what wound up being the final reel of Rogue One, which was effectively a suicide mission where the little rebel group that we've watched form over the course of the film uh, makes this daring raid on an Imperial uh, intelligence facility where they steal the plans for the Death Star that wind up being the sort of central MacGuffin of the, the original Star Wars movie. And they all die. And yet it's a very exciting sequence, even though you you kind of know going in, you know, none of, maybe you don't know going in, but certainly it very quickly becomes apparent that like these characters we've gotten to know, they're not going to be characters in this universe again. We're seeing the end of them. But it's still um, a thrilling action sequence, probably the best of the Disney uh, Star Wars movies to date. And it has this political valence about these people who are literally sacrificing their lives in hopes of in hopes that in doing so, they're they're creating conditions for improving the lives of other people um, and and and. They're sacrificing it all for this rebellion. And, um, you know, to see him bring that sensibility, which I think he developed in, you know, non-Star Wars stuff like Michael Clayton, uh, to where he's given full run of the whole the whole project in this, at you know, in this, in the case of Andor. Um, it's a bold choice. I think it's, it's much more interesting than their usual tactic of, you know, tapping like young franchise guys and and then getting sick of them and kicking them to the curb and just bringing back J.J. Abrams or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it feels like a real, um, you know, this is a pretentious thing to say and I apologize for it in advance, but it feels like an actual artist is in charge of this. And, yeah. and it doesn't feel like so much Disney product does like it was made in a boardroom, essentially. Um, this feels like someone with an actual point of view beyond, hey, Star Wars is cool. And uh, that's a thrill.
Yeah, no, I mean, definitely there's a kind of like a sensibility um, and it is not sort of reiterative of the franchise. I think I think in your reviews of it, one thing you mentioned, which um, uh, I was glad you pointed out was the sort of music, that there's a kind of, you know, classical Star Wars music, uh, which is very powerful, which actually I think is a big part of the appeal of the, um, you know, the main franchise, which is John Williams. That's like in some, a lot of ways, the, uh, the original soundtrack um, really uh, taught the audience how to feel uh, towards this material and um, unified some material that, you know, like was kind of a bit haphazard and like, you know, not elegantly put together, but like was unified through the music. Um, and I think in Andor as well, it's a very, um, it is not the classic Star Wars, you know, these sort of, you know, Imperial no. March as Darth Vader comes in. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about the music? Because Yeah, you know, as you say, you know, most of the Star Wars music that people know, and I think justifiably love, I think it's amazing film score uh, work is by John Williams. And then in general, the composers that they've hired for the movies where Williams was not doing the full uh, run of the music uh, let's say Michael Giacchino like he was hired to be you know as close to uh, Williams clone as he could you know Giacchino has his own sensibilities of course you know most composers do but it does it feels it still feels familiar in this case they brought in Nicholas Patel who's best known for Succession um, where I'm not crazy about his work, I find it really kind of almost maddeningly repetitive, but he's also uh, close collaborated with Barry Jenkins and he's done magnificent work for Barry Jenkins on his films and on the Underground Railroad, an incredible show that does not get talked enough, talked about enough at all. And the sensibility is completely different. There are these big percussion hits of like stuff that I've never heard in a Star Wars show before you know, where it's just drums going for a while and, and it's not like a, a build to some sort of big classical swelling of orchestral music. Um, it, it, it just, it, it, it feels tense and modern and a uh, contemporary, I mean, and um, it does not tell you how to feel in the way that Star Wars music generally does. And again, that's not a complaint about John Williams. I think John Williams was doing what those movies needed him to do, and they're much better movies for it. But it is exciting to come to a Star Wars show where you are given the chance to feel unfamiliar things, to feel uncertainty, to feel um, confusion, to wrestle with the ideas and emotions that are present in the show without the familiar force theme song or Imperial March or Yoda's music or Leia's music or whatever, Duel of the Fates to come in and, and sort of cement what you're experiencing in your previous experiences with this franchise. Yeah, no, no that, that's right. The music itself is very indicative of a kind of the, the a shift in tone and, and, and approach. Um, uh, and, and it's all very unexpected. Uh, I, I think that Star Wars music of the uh, John Williams sort is so familiar that once we're given like a, a very different type of music, then we know we're in a, a narrative where things aren't actually gonna go necessarily how we expect. Um, to, to return to the political aspect, I, 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 as you mentioned, there's a lot of um, issues with the sort of, you know, the, the policing of the empire. That it's, it's uh, um, I mean, at the level at which the characters experience the empire, it is, you know, not the sort of stormtroopers that are like, uh, uh, it is more these sort of like corporate hired uh, security guards and goons. And I, I think one of the interesting things is the sort of very 
I don't know if nuance is quite the correct word or the individuated way in which we see a variety of kind of like bullies and cowards uh, <laughs> who work within <laughs> uh, the, the, um, that level of like sort of um, uh, law enforcement and uh, uh, maintenance. Do, do you want to talk about like some of the, 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 uh, those characters? I'm particularly thinking of uh, uh, Cyril Karn. Karn, uh, a terrific, a terrific character. He's sort of the ringleader of the corporate cops that we do meet uh, in the early episodes who have discovered that, I don't even remember what the impetus, how they got onto Andor's case, but Andor is like a, a smuggler and a mercenary. And he's the, oh, it's because he, the, he killed the two cops yeah. Yeah. and they're on the, you know, actually Karin's supervisor is like, eh, we don't need the hassle about this. You know, just say there was an accident or whatever and we'll, we'll bury it in paperwork. We don't want the Empire dealing with this. Karn, because he's ambitious and a weasel uh, and a little too gung-ho for, yeah, a go-getter, um, he he decides, he takes it upon himself to find this killer. And it winds up being a complete debacle where the killer gets away after like, I, I, it's a little bit difficult to tell, but he blows the hell out of the other cops. You know, cops are getting shot and killed. It's a it's a complete disaster. And there's this moment where Karn, uh, after there's this explosion that knocks half of his force like clean across the street, and the the people he's chasing get away, and he's realizing how badly he screwed up and what this means for his career. And he, I don't, you don't get the sense that he's particularly broken up about all his his colleagues who died. He's like, oh, no, my ass is on the line. And the camera just sticks on him at, with as with tears in his eyes. He just stands there in shock looking at uh, this catastrophe that he's wrought with his own uh, over overweening ambition. And his his uh, second in command, I think it's Lieutenant Mosk, who's kind of a blustery um you know, ruddy faced, you know, we have, you know, it's about order and justice and stuff, you know, like a, a true believer, not a true believer, but you know, a bully. He, he wants to yeah. like, you know. And he's, yeah, and he's an ass kisser. Um, he's, he's yelling at his boss, like we have to do something. We have to help the people who got injured, like, sir, sir, sir. And the guy is just completely frozen. And then, and then what happens is he gets dressed down, he gets fired, the empire takes over the sector from the corporation. So it's a complete disaster from a professional's perspective. And what happens to him? He goes home to his mother who slaps him and then hugs him and berates him over and over and over again and says, you know, your uncle could really help us if we call your uncle. I'm sure he'll find, you know, it's very tough for you to find an, your own job at this point, that's for sure. But I'm sure uncle, uncle Renlo or whatever his name is can help. And she pours his cereal for him and infantilizes him and She's constantly needling him and he's constantly needling back. And I'm just thinking like, you never get this for Grand Moff Tarkin from, from Star Wars. You never get this for like, you know, random stormtrooper storm trooper number 57. You're seeing um, cop mindset at work. You're seeing the disaster that is cop mindset in action. And then you're seeing what life is like for someone with cop mindset when they go home. And they're an asshole and their mom's an asshole. And I hope I can say asshole on this podcast. Oh, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it, it's just, um, 
it's fascinating to you're not he's a sympathetic character in the sense that i think in general a drama like it helps to have sympathy for basically everybody that you're watching but like they're not trying to say oh he's a good guy underneath it all he's not um but they are actually painting a portrait of how and why someone might become a cop in this system and what that person is like and it's it's a, a pretty honest uh, warts and all uh no beating around the bush portrayal of that kind of person and again i'm just shocked to see it on a star wars show or really almost any show uh you 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 don't get a ton of like i've watched a lot of just coincidentally true crime shows this year and most of them have been about how badly the cops screwed up but still there's always you know like you know some very thoughtful detective who steps in and and gets the job done or whatever and so far you're not getting any thoughtful detectives on this show you know it's all bullies and cowards and assholes and sycophants like you said and uh yeah, yeah. no no I, I think that's right yeah even on the sort of like there's a higher level of imperial bureaucracy uh but they are kind you know like portrayed with some differentiation you get a sense of different characters but they are existing in this kind of you know world of um uh, uh oppressive bullying and jockeying for power uh uh and so 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 i mean the, the portrait of the um uh empire is very well done and maybe just to end it like I, I think one thing that people are really responding to, um, and one sees this in the sort of Twitter comments, uh, you know, I noticed people all over the world were really responding to, you know, the idea that, you know, one of the characters has a sort of like manifesto. And so, um, which I think is like, if you think about it in sort of Star Wars terms, is a very interesting um, uh, overturning of the norm, which is that the norm is that, you know, like if you're fighting the empire, you're going back to the old values, you're going back to the Jedi and the Jedi lore and the Jedi teachings. Uh, what in this version of Star Wars, you know, like if you have an old order, like, you know, it oppresses people, they're starting to awaken to their difficulty and they write a manifesto of what's wrong. And that's not going back to the old order. It's like, you know, uh, you have characters who are sort of agents of transformative change. Um, do you want to like uh, uh, say anything about the, I think in the most recent episode, the, just the way that the kind of the, the uh, coalescing rebel group is portrayed? Yeah, I'm, I, you raise a great point that they're, they're not returning to an old order. In fact, part of and the main character Andor's origin story is that he lived on this planet where there was a mining disaster. And the old, this was before the Empire. It was in the days of the Old Republic. And Republic soldiers were going to come to investigate it. And the smugglers who raid the crash site and then try and split before the soldiers arrive, they have to take this kid with them because they realize if he's around, he's going to get blamed for what happened and they're going to kill him. And this is the good guys. This is the Republic. So there's not this, this yearning for the old ways as there are in the material where the Jedi are present. And um, yeah, in this most recent episode, you learn a lot about this little tiny rebel group that's going to pull off um, a raid on uh, a, a, a storage facility where the Imperial payroll is kept for an entire sector of the galaxy. So it's a fortune and it would actually hurt the empire and actually benefit the rebellion in, in a pretty significant way. And you start learning about who these people are. One of them is uh, an Imperial officer who has soured on the empire 
because he fell in love with a local woman who the empire then imprisoned. One of them, uh, his brother was a farmer whose farm was flooded by the empire to make room for some other thing that they wanted to do. And the brother couldn't take it and killed himself. And again, they're talking about suicide in a Star Wars show. And there's a great line by this character. His name is Ski, and he's played by Eben Moss Backrack, who was, you know, from Girls and the Bear. And he says, I always hated the Empire. Now, I don't know if there's a word for how I feel. And I just thought that was really good writing about how the um, fury and, and hatred that we feel for oppressive systems that have hurt hurt people in general and then hurt us and people that we love specifically um it gets bigger than you're able to verbalize and uh that is very i i found again kind of shocking to hear in a star wars show and then the final thing that i want to bring up here is there is um this young sort of idealistic member of the you know he's not a cockeyed optimist or a naive or anything. He, you know, he just, he has very specific political ideas that he, that inform his involvement in this sort of nascent rebellion and that he wants to share with people. And he's literally writing a manifesto. And I'll just quote the little, little spiel that he gives to Andor. You know, he says, it's so confusing, isn't it? So much going on, so much to say, and all of it happening so quickly. The pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it and that is the real trick of the imperial thought machine it's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than a single incident and i feel like all of us living today have had that sense that like there's just too much shit to think about and worry about and it's coming from all sides at all times uh, you know from the bottom up from the top down uh, horizontally you just feel like the stuff that you care about and the people that you care about are under constant attack politically, socially, economically, physically in a lot of cases, and uh, just gets too hard to kind of collate all this information in your brain. And what this guy is saying is like, yeah, that's on purpose, man. Like, you're supposed to feel overwhelmed. You're supposed to be like, you know, you know, one one atrocity, you know, that's horrible. When you're hearing about them day after day after day after day after day, it kind of, you, you tune it out a little bit. It kind of grays out for you. And I think this is a pretty sophisticated concept to introduce again into a Star Wars show where generally speaking, uh, what the franchise falls back on is good versus evil, dark versus light. And I got no problem with that. Generally speaking, it's a fantasy. And you know, you want to do that in a fantasy, you know, be my guest. I've enjoyed, you know, I certainly enjoyed Star Wars growing up and and even in a lot of ways as an adult, watching it with my kids and 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 just talking about the movies that I do like. But there's room in this universe to do more things than the, than just the Jedi versus the Sith. And that's what you're seeing here. And so it's it, I think it's exciting both on the level of, well, it's so different and it's Star Wars trying something new and then the specifics of what it's trying and how, again, sophisticated these ideas are. I mean, they're not going to blow the minds of people who have not been thinking of, of people who've been thinking about this stuff for real, 
it's just to hear it in this context is kind of thrilling, I think. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think that really gets at uh, why so many people are like excited by this. And, and the passage you quoted in particular, I've noticed is uh, one of the things uh, that's kind of going viral. And I, I think exactly because it resonates with the experience that people have. Um, so I think that's a really good note to end on. I, I think you've, uh, 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 I think you've articulated uh, uh, much better than I could uh, the, the sort of you know, what's exactly going on. And uh, uh, I want to thank you uh, for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.